0: You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events, hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Podcasting is by RealSmart Media. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features the keynote from Thresholds Contexts of Rupture, Change and Adaptation, the 2022 UCD Humanities Institute PhD Conference. This conference took place on the 25th of March. The keynote speaker was Professor Caroline Bassett, Professor of Digital Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Her keynote was entitled The Light Under the Door Technologies and the End of Worlds. Professor Bassett was introduced by Lauren Cassidy. Hi, everyone. So we've uh, come to our keynote uh, section of the evening. So Caroline Bassett is a professor in the Faculty of English at the University of Cambridge and the Director of Cambridge Digital Humanities since 2019. Her research explores digital technologies in relation to questions of knowledge production and epistemology. She's written extensively on digital technologies, cyber feminism and informational capitalism. Her 2019 book, Furious Technological Feminism and Digital Futures, which was co authored with Sarah Kemba and Kata Reardon, is a fascinating investigation of the gender bias implicit in existing digital humanities scholarship, as well as the Anthropocene and intersectional feminist techno futures. And it's a must read for anyone who's interested in the discipline. Her newest book is just out now in March 2022, and it's called Anti Computing. So please, warm welcome for Professor Bassett.
1: I started with Furious and then I had Anti Computing, and the next book might just be called Irritated. Or something. <laughs> okay, so thank you for inviting me and thank you for today. It's been wonderful, really brilliant discussions, and I've really enjoyed it. And it's great being real or at least hybrid. Anyway, um, writing this, I was worried that by now there'd be nothing left to say and also that we'd have together crossed that threshold, which leads from attentive listening to dreaming about the end, or even what comes after the end, which might be a bar, for example. But it is endings that I want to talk about today. This talk explores digital technologies, progress, and the ends of worlds. So thresholds as endings, as well as thresholds as openings, if you like. I want to explore how we imagine them, contemplate them and engage with them. And the kind of endings I'm talking about or the endings I'm starting from and the openings are about the digital or the computational, uh, one of those terms, which is hard to define, but you know what I mean. What does it mean, for instance, that we explore the prospect of endings of the world, of the human, of the planet, partly through the use of digital technologies that might contribute to those endings coming about? Hopes of a future based on an investment in technology could be in this way considered a kind of medium form of cruel optimism, perhaps. Because digital developments, digital shifts, digital breaks, digital ruptures are not happening somewhere else in a different register, separate from what we write, circulate, live through or are ordered within. Whatever those discourses of expertise and authority which suggests to us that issues such as AI science and its risks are beyond us or beyond the humanities. So that for instance, warnings about singularity, catastrophe by scientists or technicians are regarded as valid in one way and critiques of systemic exploitation or discrimination through data bias by humanists in another might say, matters of fact and matters of concern you might want to think about. In fact, this talk is partly intended as a defense of or an investigation of why the humanities has significant things to say about media technological thresholds and portals, including those that seem least amenable to textual critique, most material in their effects. This might be, I think, because our incompetence in one area, let's say, that which is designated the specifically and narrowly technical, can direct attention to the degree to which another set of skills also matters, humanities skills, because they will be needed, but also because they are intrinsic, because we write with them, because we are in with them. It seems to me that these things are as important to the constitution of the networks we fell into as code or internet protocols or infrastructures Technology is also culture, and so cultural studies, humanities, and literature is needed to explore it. I'm sure this audience knows this, but at a time when digital humanities is sometimes taken to be replacing one term, the digital, with the other, it bears repeating, and the form of DH that I'm interested in exploring and developing seeks to expand rather than instrumentalize or replace. At any rate... This talk explores media technological thresholds. I do so thinking about these thresholds as a series where the trajectory might be from the internet as the portal that swallowed us and reversed out to us, to the AI that might kill us. The point being not only to explore this in relation to endings, but also in relation in some way or other to literature. Thinking through these issues, I found Jack Derrida's 1980s discussion of nuclear criticism in an issue of Diacritic, part of a seminar exploring the humanities and nuclear defence in the Reagan-Thatcher years. Very thought-provoking, and I'm going to return to it. It's a kind of leitmotif of this uh, paper, in fact. There's a caveat here. When I began to write this paper, my interest in the discussions in nuclear criticism was rather formal. I was interested in Derrida's exploration of thinking the limit and thought that it suggested ways to consider AI singularity and the claims of a kind of technological terminal threshold. Today, in the context of the Ukraine and in the context of what's happening in Europe, it seems differently relevant, maybe violently relevant as those events unfold. And as they underscore a connection, that's always more than formal, more than analogous or metaphorical between information and media technology, machines of war, societal collapse and bodily disintegration. The connection, I think, so I'm not really invoking this, I'm slightly worried about invoking this in an opportunistic way, if you like, but I actually think you have to invoke it because these technologies are related and because they link, I'll come back to that. It seems to me that these connections haunt us all, albeit differentially life on Mars or refugee status as an aspiration in networked, enabled global capitalism, depending on who you are and the stakes that you have in it. And of course, the connection ghosts into being in fiction, films, popular imaginaries. A Wikipedia entry on films and novels at the end of the world lists literally hundreds of entries. Technology, war, societal collapse, the litany or the taxonomy repeats and repeats. If you scroll through them quite fast, though, they blur together. These various forms of the end of the world are not discrete at all, but intimately connected. And these connections inform this talk, as I hope will become evident. For now, though, I'm moving back, if you like, to think uh, about digital media technologies and to think about the usages of thresholds in relation to digital media. Because mapping computational futures as a series of thresholds or portals is something done by industry futurists and tech developers, of course. And the maps they produce certainly have a performative kind of force. But it seems to me that portal thinking can also be part of attempts to think the technological future differently. And that I think is something that we might want to be trying to do. One of my concerns is to think how these different ways of thinking with portals intersect and connect. For example, how might a view of digital technology as a portal to growth, which is more or less the industry view, reverse so that the final threshold entails a violent contraction, acceleration, hitting a wall. Thinking about thresholds, it seems to me, invites thinking then about the nature of progress or progression and technological progress I'm talking about, and of the degree to which this tends to be, on the industry side, regarded as ontologically or even teleologically driven. On the other side, or a different way of thinking about it, the humanities or media studies tends to think about these kinds of progresses as contingent and therefore rather more uncertain and actually rather more intervenable in. I know that's not a word. Thinking about these uh, thresholds, the the two different kinds of thresholds or thinking about the notion of technological thresholds as a flow, if you like, as thresholds we flow through, which introduce uh, barriers, but which also are part of this sequence, if you like, What are the issues that we need to think about? I think we need to think about how these thresholds are materialized as extent architectures, in fiction, as texts, words and discourse. I think we need to think about how these thresholds form in our imagination before they emerge in real life. Perhaps that's not a good way to think that distinction. I think we should ask what these thresholds afford, how they can be experienced. At what speed they operate and how we view them. I think as well, we need to consider specifically two types of thresholds thresholds that operate to discriminate, blocking the future or the future if we don't have the right knowledge or the right ticket or the right passport. And we need to think about the thresholds or barriers that we may not cross at all, final thresholds, thresholds at the end of the world. Faced with these last two kinds of barriers, my question, one question I want to ask is, is it possible to cheat, to hop over, work around, explore the light under the door? Maybe this is asking if some kinds of literature or other kinds of cultural production can glitch or cheat or take us where we're not supposed to go. Quentin Melisu actually asks if a kind of science fiction, XSF, he calls it, can do that by contesting the limits of causality itself, going to places we shouldn't be able to go anywhere, uh, even in literature, if you like. I'm actually interested not only in where we can go if we cheat, but also in the limits as well as the outermost possibilities of kind of glitchy pre-configuration. I'm interested actually in how literature might cheat on us. I'll come back to that. Now, though, I want to uh, look at some of these issues in slightly more detail by way of uh, five uh, sets of comments. Generations being intelligence, apocalypse, and the slaughterhouse, roughly. So technological generations or the road ahead a Bill Gates' book that no one should ever read. I hope you've forgotten it. Digital technologies are conventionally framed as passing through generational thresholds taking us with them or leaving some of us behind, those without connectivity, expertise, or the right social or cultural capital. I'm sure you know the most obvious trajectory. It would go something like the net, the web, web 2.0, mobile pervasive media, blockchain, platforms, machine learning, AI, uh, general AI, intelligence. That's the kind of uh, technological trajectory. Technology in this reading of events, is, which is an industrial uh uh, reading, really, is your passport to cross into a constantly receding, upgraded future. And speed is crucial. It speeds up, and you have to speed up to stay up. And temporality, of course, is always spatialization, as everybody from Frederick Jameson in Singularity to Manuel Castells and the Network Society has told us. The space of flows are accompanied by the silted up bywaters of uh, of world places in the world that are within the system, but not part of that dynamic movement. Noting, though, that progress is read as growth, we can also note that technological thresholds are given to us as quantitative becoming qualitative. Numbers of users, size of data lake, algorithmic power, all of these are meant to produce the complexity switch which changes quantity to quality, a qualitative change. That is said to be going to produce a, a breakthrough or a rupture. Finally, let's note that technological thresholds are often read as a progression from the crude to the exalted. Progress, then, as through these portals, as refinement from the crude material to the exalted fabric. One, of, one version of this is found in the old 1990s cy, cyberspace dream, the Manichaean uh, dream nightmare, right? So let's uh, not be held by the brittle strength of bone or its gendering in some versions of cyber feminism. One threshold of technology has been repeatedly configured in terms of leaving the body behind. First cyberpunk, now the metaverse. These tropes repeat across the generations. Uh, It's about... uh, uh, Transcending bodily limits, the old men of Silicon Valley are key funders of cyrogenics about augmenting flesh bodies cognitively and in terms of prosthesis. One way of thinking about the post-digital is that we went into the rabbit hole, the internet, and came back out, only to find that meanwhile, the portal had reversed out too, and it was here and everywhere, pervasive media, billions of sensors, bits of the future now. If as William Gibson famously put it, rather unevenly distributed. So there's a technological version of these kinds of which give us progress as a generation, if you like, uh, and as a stream and as a moment of transcendence and as growth. The second thing I want to look at is uh, being in the portal, collective experience, which in a way is where we are. Sort of now. And I want to talk about Patricia Lockwood a little bit. Patricia Lockwood says, Why are we writing like this? Because a new kind of connection had to be made and blink, synapse, little space between was the only way to make it. Or because this was more frightening, it was the way the portal wrote. So if I want to switch from infrastructural thresholds, which are highly technologically and industrially determined, to experience, then Lockwood's novel, They Didn't No One Is Talking About This, might be a good place to start. Lockwood is a consummate tweeter described as a spirit in the void by The Guardian, slightly dubiously. And I think that the crossing between the novel, which concerns a 30-something white American who spends a lot of time in the void, is germane here. Because of the crossing between real life and fiction, that is part of the collective experience of becoming uh, one of the people populating platforms, if you like. So the the portal, or internet at any rate, is here explored in the novel as having an impact on authorship, on the self, on who speaks and who writes and how. And this isn't about truth or lies at all, or even authenticity, but about experience and also, I think, about consciousness. The stream of consciousness has moved online and become collective and public in a new way. It is they who write and they who arbitrate, particularly strictly but without much memory. The flock moves on, attention shifts. It's not the kind of portal that would take you back to the modernism of Joyce, but towards a new form of collective being which involves a certain kind, a certain different kind, I think, of disintegration. It passed into you, 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 until she had no idea where she ended and the rest of the crowd began. One of the things Lockwood gets at too is acceleration of words, memes, ideas, of the production and iteration of the self. The portal you fell into takes you along for a ride, the speed of which is you, not you, which is accelerating. And what they didn't tell you, by the way, which is uh, uh, the thing they're not talking about, is that there remains a break between this fast data, this acceleration and slow bodies. There's a moment when the incommensurate nature of the forms of experience of living in the flesh and living on the portal clash if you like it seems to me that Lockwood is exploring a form of automation of writing the they of the portal is an assemblage that takes on a life of its own and seems to write for itself which might mean it cannot write of certain experiences at all or that we've left them behind uh, one side of the portal Lockwood is powerfully diagnostic, I think, of the state we're in, or some of us are in. She never forgets she's a white American internet native, and she's exploring that situation, if you like, both in relation to the disintegration of her conscious writing being and in relation to her sense of the privilege of that disintegrating situation. Okay, the third uh, third heading I want to talk about is not the experience threshold, but the intelligence threshold. And I'm talking very briefly about Ted Chang. Stories of your life and others. And thinking about this form of automation, not of, again, not of writing, but of intelligence, I think we're moving further in towards looming technological thresholds, the not here yet, the moment of AI singularity, whether or not we believe it's going to come, which already informs our imaginaries. Ted Chiang begins a story in uh, Stories of Your Life uh, and Others with uh, this quote. He says, it's been 25 years since a report of original research was last submitted for publication. In Chang's short story, human science and the humanities have become a matter of attempting to follow the knowledge produced by intelligent machines. Academic journal articles are now exercises in translation. As human scientists engage with machine level thinking, they cannot fully grasp. Chang's story grapples with a form of automation knowledge and also with the changing terms of knowledge exchange. Donna Haraway sense that as machines become more lively, we become frighteningly inert. And his tale resonates by the way, with attempts right now to to try and make uh, or or with a moment that we're probably experiencing right now, when our attempts to make our language comprehensible to machines have translated, if you like, into our attempts to try and understand uh, the knowledge that machines give back to us. So we used to talk about how to encode our uh, our language into machines. We now think about how to uh, work through questions of black boxing and explainability. And that's the kind of reversal I think that uh, Chang's talking about. So Lockwood's sense of digital being was at once about slipping into the stream of consciousness Drowning in the race forwards. But technological advance, of course, is configured also in terms of an absolute rupture as a break, the, singular, the singularly new. Technological singularity tends to be framed as the moment when human intelligence is surpassed, when machines made by humans become more intelligent and more powerful than the humans who made them, and when they take on the power that that gives them or perhaps say multiple scientists, we've mistaken the finality of the break and the timing or duration of its initiation and are already in the process of transition, experiencing it only tentatively since its outcome is outside our experience and because we're wrongly expecting to recognize the moment and to be able to make that final decision about the digital switch. So Ted Chiang gives us our intelligence as a threshold But of course, the way that the kind of uh, discussions around singularity are framed also suggests it represents not only a cognitive threshold, but becomes an existential risk. Singularity is a matter of the superseding of the human self by the technological self, a matter of control and mastery of who owns the road, if you like, to all the futures. So the threshold of singularity is also a threshold which signals to some to the existential risk people, to many of the AI scientists who have now become extremely worried at least for the moment, although one wonders, uh, is a threshold which might signal the end of the world or at least humans' chance of ex- ex- inheriting it. okay So I want to move on to the uh, to the, the the next heading really, which carries on thinking about singularity but uh, let singularity rejoin those other conjoined technological risks that I already talked about. And uh, to think about the relationship between digital technologies and ideas of progress, risk, and existential problems, and join that really to to what you might talk about in terms of the general accident, as Rilio did in the 20th century, or the Risk Society around about the same time, and also to uh, think about how that's now configured around the Anthropocene as environmental collapse and its associated technological uh, technological uh, supports, if you like. So uh, the way that we tend to think about technology and the general accident these days is anthropocenically or environmentally led, but technology, computer technologies are within that or a part of that, partly by way of uh, their direct contribution to that through power through the, the through extraction, through the through the, the power that they use, but also actually uh, because of the way in which they link and produce us as a globalized system, which is kind of which finds risk, uh, which globalizes risk to put it like that. So the the threshold I want to think about now is the threshold of technology as the general accident or the door that opens onto the apocalypse. And let's just note it's getting pretty crowded in there. I think we're looking at a form of uh, apocalypse fever. There's a contemporary fascination with, or even a desire for the end of things. There's full-on apocalypse kinds of novels or films, The Road. There are novels where life is lived in the aftermath of a certain kind of collapse, beyond the last door, in a bittersweet hereafter, often melancholic, often containing unreliable artificial life as well as broken humans, Clara in the Sun, if anyone has read it, a backing out of virtuality and smooth surfaces and automated life to buttons that press, dial phones that don't work, uh, an old, real, new with new constraints. Tade Thompson's uh, Afrofuturist novel, Rosewater, gets at how certain kinds of life become not possible to sustain at all in certain kinds of contraction of the geographical spread of, uh, of the life that can be lived gets at this, as does Blade Runner, um, I think all versions, which is clearly and always has been in love aesthetically with a kind of ruined sky. It seems to me that these apocalypse lit novels and other forms of uh, apocalyptic production, perhaps articulate and gather up a sensibility around technology progress and its ending they can tell us or inform us about it perhaps and maybe they can do that in ways that other form of predicting future collapse for example risk science existential uh, existential risk science can't they don't cross the threshold but they might find a way to slip over to the other side and uh, bring us a report on what happens next they do it in many different and many distinctive ways and also in ways that are generic or becoming generic. We've internalized the idea of a certain kind of post-apocalypse world. It becomes standard, banal, and even boring. The protagonist of uh, Jemison's Stone People series puts it reasonably pithily, let's start with the end of the world, get it over and done with, and move on to more interesting things. I think this might be, uh, they're great books, by the way, <laughs> I think this might be a response to the idea of relentless growth, progress, and ex- accelerated risk or precarity, a form of refusal that takes many forms. And by that, I mean, it may be consciously articulated or not, but might constitute some kind of symptom, some kind of political unconscious, maybe even. You might say humanity's or literature, or film, has developed a kind of fictional, ex- fictional but real expertise in the apocalypse. We expect it, we configure it, we know what it reveals. There's a tradition of thinking about encountering trauma in that way, as domestication, and also, of course, narrativization. Marianne Doan's fantastic essay, Crisis Catastrophe Information, did it a long time ago, and did it rather beautifully, exploring how uh, narrativization itself takes the incommensurable and the incomprehensible, and renders it narrativizable, and therefore something that can be uh, countenanced, if you like. It seems to me that um, that is the kind of process that uh, apocalypse literature, including specifically uh, digital apocalypse literature, in general, does. There are expectations. Uh, sorry, there are exceptions, and ways in which uh, science fiction, in particular, but other kinds of digital literature, might. Uh, might find ways around that, getting round that, if you like. I want to invoke. I hope no one minds about the swear word. Sorry, forgot. It's a warning. Too late. <laughs> uh, I want to invoke Zone One, Coston Whitehead's extraordinary zombie novel, which I read as a novel about technology. One of the end of the world categories in the wiki I invoked earlier was human collapse, but another was zombie. And zombies, of course, matter. Uh, They're exemplars of this uh, machines being more lively, we becoming more inert. Like many of the novels already mentioned, the main body of the text concerns life in a post-apocalyptic, post-collapse kind of a future. At the end of zone one, though, the human appears to resign even this kind of life and to seek uh, to look at or concentrate or contemplate the notion of uh, a post-apocalyptic life that does not begin something new. That is not doing what Jeminson does. That is not saying, let's get over the end of the world so we can start something new. Instead, he walks into the sea of the dead. No apocalypse, no revelation. I'm coming back to Derrida to try and think about that. Um, I guess that's a kind of an ending. (laughs) Okay. So the last threshold that I want to talk about, I think it's the last, is the nuclear threshold, the unfixable, the unrehearsed, the unrehearsable, and the not very contemplatable. That's what I want to think about. So the final threshold I want to talk about, with which information technology is associated, and again, in relation to those other technologies and those other formations that I've already invoked, is the extinction event or the nuclear threshold taken to constitute or stand for the wholly other. That is distinct from thresholds concerning partial, if general, or slow or durational collapse, operating as a guillotine, if you like, but exceptional in other ways too. And thinking about that, I'm going back to this diacritics collection and to Derrida's discussion of nuclear criticism and of the idea that nuclear criticism is a form of uh, of critique, if you like, a way to theorize and understand and think through uh, these kinds of moments. So uh, nuclear criticism uh, was written in the 80s, more or less around the time of the Star Wars program. Uh, the Reagan-Thatcher uh, Star Wars, well, the Reagan uh, Star Wars defense program and the U.S. and Anglo-American contention that there was such a thing as a survivable nuclear war, which many people took to mean there was less prospect of survival than than uh, than before. So it was a response to the deter- deterrent, if you like. So the nuclear criticism and the Diacritic seminar was really held as a humanities critical theory, medium theory, feminist theory, response to the unprecedented prospect of global annihilation, terminal destruction, That emerged in relation to Reagan's policy of survivable war. That's Bruce Sterling making that comment about fake news, by the way. Uh, Survivability suggests an after. What to do in the case of an atomic attack after an attack. Nuclear campaigners at the time, and much more accurately in my view, said we would be simply gone with the wind. Absolute dissolution, shadows on the ground. Those being horribly familiar, in fact, those are from Hiroshima in 1945 and in commemoration, actually, since then in many different ways. Again, I'm hesitant to push this link, perhaps because it sometimes seems obscene to link speculation found in uh, in the popular press around singularity thresholds with their cartoonishness, be very afraid here be monsters, here is a Terminator, here is a particular register of thinking death, with the arms race and nuclear war and the bombs that fell in '45. But the thresholds can join. And while we may not think that machines are going to stalk the land, that's fantasy, we do know that technological warfare, including intelligence and drones, links in. These are connected. Uh, Octavia Butler, who I don't really have time to talk about, actually made this connection quite brilliantly in the the 80s, round about the same time, uh, writing what is now thought of as a kind of Afrofuturist cyber fiction but was in fact a direct response to the Star Wars defence programme and is about nuclear annihilation and a kind of alien form of intelligence. So if it seems important to think about the nuclear threshold and it seems important to ask why the humanities need to think about it, then what might its features be? I think one, and maybe this is obvious by now, uh, not obvious to you. I hope I've made it clear is what I mean. (laughs) Uh, I hope I've made it clear already that there's a distinction between apocalyptic and terminal thresholds. The apocalypse entails revelation. Something is revealed through the portal even as we transition through it and beyond it. Beyond the terminal extinction portal, there is no apocalypse, no revelation. This kind of end of the human and in its AI-assisted mode relates to the vanishing, the sudden shadow, not a post, post post-digital, post-modern, a reconstruction, post-wreckage, nor a post-human, let alone a route to post-humanism. It's a void. Two, Domestication, banalization, even narrativization might not seem apt as responses in these circumstances. And as we've noted, science fiction generally does not terminally end. On the, on the contrary, seeks to begin, seeks to find a beginning. I don't think it's only science fiction, actually. I think that's uh, it's just easy to talk through that. Remember Jemison. Or well, we might say literature seeks to delay In Nuclear Critique, Derrida comments that even in the threshold of the terminal portal, literature cannot help but speak of other things as well and invent strategies for putting off the encounter with the holy other. Literature delays, cannot help but speak of other things, cannot face, in a sense, that portal. Given this, if there seems to be a light on the other side of the door, or if literature gives us that comfort, or leaflets do, or governments do, for different reasons. They might all be cheating on us, promising us a new sun, or new life, or just more, more time, more space, more duration. All this being precisely what's consumed in the final moment, beyond which there's nothing to say, to show, reveal, or to keep, or to store. I think, by the way, that insofar as Zone 1 comments on this situation, particularly in its ending, we might say it's uh, not apocalyptic literature at all, but in that sense, a kind of nuclear literature. The question, so in all this then, or in as Zone 1 comments, is it doing something, if you like, that literature should do in these contexts? Where is it placed? What should it do? That question, of course, what should literature do in times of existential crisis, is one that we're familiar with. We asked it again and again uh, in relation to many different things, for example, in pandemics, why fund this piece of literature, this film, this theatre, when you could fund that, this medicine, this vaccination programme? When we're in the portal, the threshold of this kind of portal or this kind of peril or think we make, it's difficult to... uh, make the case for the function or the place or the uses, if you like, of the humanities or of literature. After COVID, should you build back with the humanities or find a more efficient way to consider what might have been a close call with existential risk? Might still be, we don't quite know, do we? The reason I'm making that comparison is that's exactly what the existential risk people do say And I think their Benthamite focus on the effective idea on prioritizing what is effective as an existential response rather than focusing on duration or what might come between uh, has very little time at all for the humanities and for its delays, for its desire to to think before uh, we go through the portal, if you like. I think that some of the arguments in Derrida's missiles essay and contribute to framing a response to some of those kind of forms of thinking and his arguments are i'm going to try and just talk about his arguments a little bit uh though this is very compressed really uh his first argument really is that uh the technological crisis his, his first argument is that the nuclear crisis uh he was facing in the 1980s was a crisis that was a real crisis Whose event was yet to come? That's the the key uh, argument, really. So, as in the technological crisis we face today, total nuclear war, the terminal horizon of the 1980s, uh, is to come. As a consequence, in its form, as a not yet, it entails rhetoric, policy, interest, we might say, legislation, publics, opinions, media, documents, discourse. And thus, it is, as Derrida put it, exceptionally textual. It's also, and for the time being, but that that caveat really matters, a fable. He says, reality in the nuclear age is constructed by the fable on the basis of an event that has never happened except in fantasy, and that's nothing, not nothing at all an event whose advent remains an invention by men in all the senses of invention, or which rather remains to be invented. I think one of the points here is that the humanity's understanding, perhaps of fiction, fabulation, or the stakes of realism without a referent yet, which is what the entirely unprecedented existential threshold is, can be informing, can matter, can be a resource for thinking when thinking about these kinds of uh, moments. Nuclear criticism, as I read it then, works in the shadow of the looming existential threshold rather than seeking to see through or hop across or cheat from the other side to find a way to be over there without making the passage moreover, although it's aware of a door, a horizon, a moment in the race, it differs from the progress narratives that we hear of from industry, because while they consider the flow along that stream as inevitable, whether the ending is for good or ill, nuclear critique, which is humanity's critique, is not teleology, and its insistence on speculation enables a kind of politics. Derrida again. Nuclear war is speculation, an invention invented, quote, in order to make a place for it or to prevent it from taking place, either way. Here then, I think we begin to see how thinking from the humanities can be important in thinking the nuclear condition or the existential AI condition, even if it can't get under the door even if science fiction as a particular genre isn't as good at as peaking as we thought, even if glitches don't tell us as much as we'd hoped about the state of mind of machines, even if automatic writing doesn't reveal the soul of a machine but only reflects what we already wrote back to us. The point then is not literature as prefigurative. The switch is from the register of the fiction of endings and or from literature's tendency to delay or speak about other things, to thinking, I think, about literature in general, about the stockpile of literature that is the archive, in other work defined by Derrida as that which, amongst other things, should be a pledge for the future. And also we have to think, if we're thinking about the risk to literature or the risks of the existential threshold, we have to think about the prospect of the total destruction of literature, and the total destruction of the archive, which in the age of literature has to face its own possibility of destruction. I think actually what Derrida is getting at is that uh, the threshold of uh, the existential threshold which technology produces is actually the conditions of possibility for a particular kind of literature to exist anyway. And I think if you want to kind of push that is really thinking about the technicity of the literary if you like so that uh, literature is part of that risk and actually you begin to get a sense then of this notion of the thinking the threshold of the technological as an overarching threshold which begins before the beginning of my my talk certainly which would take you back to this notion of techne actually so an originary technicity The literature of the final technological threshold is nuclear rather than apocalyptic in that sense. So I think that the discussion in nuclear criticism suggests that the nuclear age, which I think uh, reveals the archive or the stockpile as always having been constitutive of literature, pretty much as inscription or as techné. Digital humanities, by way of Franco Moretti, has famously thought about history and literary history as the slaughterhouse of literature. Very little of what's written balls on through to reach us of all the stuff there is, if you like. I think the nuclear age invites us to consider instead literature in the slaughterhouse, and also perhaps to question what we want or why we lean on or make demands of digital afterlives And what that might mean. So just to conclude, I think once again, it's worth asking what we might usefully do here at this kind of threshold and what literature might do. One response is that it understands fabulation and can think about its relationship to the materials of the technological. Taking this seriously is my idea of what an expanded and in Derrida's terms, responsible digital humanities might be. Thank
0: you. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward humanities.